Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You were born, of course, in the in the last minutes of the of the, of the Second World War. We're still fighting going on in the Far East, um, but you didn't stay in this country long. I think I was eleven months, and you know the funny thing is, uh, we call it Bournemouth in Dorset now, and it was Bournemouth in Hampshire then. So anyway, I was a Bournemouth girl, and it's very funny these days because I still get uh, a, a urban legend is that I went to one of the schools down there, which I didn't because I left when I was 11 months old. And of course, my uh, my father and my mother had, uh, my mother was actually born in South Africa of a Scottish father and an English mother. And she had met my father when she was uh, postgraduate at uh, Cambridge and uh, they got married. And then of course they lived in England and then they were in Paris just before the war they had it was amazing my father was vicar of the embassy church in Paris and and you know these family stories that you hear all the time but uh, how you you know when the Germans came in they were the last people virtually to leave and this beautiful apartment they had in Paris was uh, occupied by the Germans so I heard all that but so obviously England was in a tough spot in 1945 after the war and uh, so they thought they'd better go and see if they could make a life somewhere else that was more interesting or was a little easier on them. You just called them a phrase there, vicar. Your father was was a churchman. My father absolutely was. He was, uh, he was, his first job, I mean he was an, <laughs> it sounds very grand, he was an Oxford graduate but his first job was a don at Cambridge or chaplain so he had two cassocks or surpluses. No, they were ca- the, the robes that you wear. And one had Oxford colours and one had Cambridge colours. And, uh, you know, so education was quite a big part. More, more education than religion. But he was a vicar and he just, um, you know, plodded through all the various stages of vicardom. We'll come back to you in a second. Actually, I'm very interested in this because of your vicardom, yeah. Um, I don't know if this is appropriate language, but he's very good at being a vicar because he went on to get many promotions, yeah? Uh, yeah, he ended up, we were in, well, we were in Cape Town when I was, uh, before I knew what was going on. And uh, then when we, when I was six, we moved to Durban and he was Archdeacon of Durban. And uh, then, you know, he was so English, my father, that uh, despite loving the warm weather down there, and you know, those are some of the memories of going with him on to while he was writing, preparing his sermons, and I would 
he would like to go down to the wharf and watch either the ships come in or have a swim. And, you know, so those were lovely memories for me. Tell me about growing up then in South Africa. I mean, obviously a reasonably comfortable upbringing, I guess. But uh, well, just tell me about it. Well, I mean, it was an idyllic place for a child uh, who wasn't interested in politics to grow up because, I mean, I was an outdoor person. I mean, I just, uh, I never liked to have shoes on. I was always running around outside. I was always full of energy. I was always playing whatever games I could. And, uh, I mean, the weather was great. And Cape Town, uh, I mean, the, the, the rectory in Cape Town, there were pictures. I mean, it's, it doesn't exist anymore, and it had things like a corrugated metal roof, but it was a lovely house. And there were pictures of Table Mountain in the background, so all these beautiful trees. And, you know, one of my strongest memories always of the Cape was the fact that you'd always hear these doves cooing, and you can still bring that memory back. So Cape Town was... Uh, I have plenty of memories from early days in Cape Town but then Durban which was subtropical uh, it was it was it's probably not nearly well it's not half as famous as Cape Town but it was a very nice city to grow up in schooling was excellent I went to uh, both um, prep school and to the high school there and uh, it, it was, and, and we lived, the vicarage there was quite big, big garden, right overlooking where the, uh, the not the harbor, but a sort of an, in, an inlet there where the boats came in. So that was uh, always fun. And next to Parkwood was a tennis club. You, we, um, it's wrong to um, kind of just see it as South, South Africa as its history with apartheid. Because um, I, I mean, everyone's experiences that that's that's become the given story. Um, were you aware, though, uh, in your in your as you miss it, idyllic uh, upbringing uh, of the problems that were in the country? Only obviously as I got a little bit uh, sure. into my teens, and you know, to be honest, when when there were certain things that were very upsetting happening, happening like in the church the Africans had to sit at the back of the church and you could tell that it was getting uncomfortable, the situation. I, I mean, in so many ways, the, the, Af the and especially in Durban, the Zulus and many people who had a bit of money had servants. We had we didn't have servants. My mother always uh, looked after the house, but we did have, we did have one um, man who... James, who was a lovely man, who had a, a, a dwelling at the bottom of the garden, and he did the, uh, some of the garden, and he would clean a little bit. So we did have one. We did have a servant, one servant, but nobody to cook or, or that. But you know, they there was a bit of there was just really it was them and us. I mean, and there was no antagonism early on, and. Uh, and then it gradually began to build up, and then the government made rules and laws, and then it got nasty. And then that was when my father, you know, had realized that he wasn't comfortable in that situation. And uh, uh, when they sort of planned to come back. Well, that's a very good point in which to stop. And in the next part of my sporting life here on Talksport, we'll talk about your father's decision to bring you all back to England, um, by which time uh, you, you go off to have a very successful career in university and start um, becoming a very, very good tennis player and lead you on the road to three major singles titles, four 
major doubles titles um, and all of which we'll be talking about right here on My Sporting Life. You said your father became uncomfortable with the apartheid regime in South Africa and decides to bring his family back to England. Um, that must have been a ter- amazing wrench. I mean, you were, what, 15, 16 years of age? I was 15, 15, yeah. and 15 and a half to be exact because we left in, in January in the middle of the summer and it was tropical heat down there and I mean it was it was wrenching it was terrible I mean I was very very miserable leaving school because I you know I was very happy in school I had a quite a life I mean because I was the tennis was terrific in South Africa I learned to play tennis in school when I was nine years old my eldest brother was a tennis player he was pretty good he was a very good squash player then my sister who was older than me started to play so of course I wanted to play and uh, you know I said we lived next to a tennis club so eventually I would play there and so I'd, I'd play tennis whenever I could and I always laughed because you know my early days playing tennis I had a, a racket which was probably weighed 16 ounces you know now they weigh about 12 and a half and it was big with a big handle I had to choke up on it because I was only a kid yeah. and I I mean my favorite story always was or my father's favorite story was that I used to play against the wall of the garage and uh, I play, he had to fix the garage because if, if I played against the wall of the house, which was white, I ruined his wall. So he was more interested in preserving his white wall than he was uh, about my tennis. But, but my mother was good. My mother would take me around, and uh, she realized that I really wanted to do that. And then I think for my 10th birthday, I had uh, some lessons, and that was about all the teaching I ever had. When you get over here, then you you continue to go to school, um, continue your tennis, and you eventually go to university. But I'm interested when you first came over. I think you've said in the past that um, your voice, which has been your fortune for the last twenty years, as you're working in the, in the media, was a problem because you have an accent, uh, um, and you, you, as if as if it wasn't enough to be wrenched into an entirely new society, a new country, in a new hemisphere, um, you felt people were also excluding you because you were different. You know, I just felt a little different. I don't think I ever felt uh, excluded. I just felt... uh, uh, The funny thing was, when we first came over, my eldest brother had been a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, so and he had found this house for us to rent to begin with, and it was in Wimbledon. So the first place that I ever... Well, no, I had been to England before when I was 13, but my first place that I lived was actually in Wimbledon so of course that you literally get there and the next day in the middle of winter you go down to the club and it was quite awe-inspiring you know it's when you think of South Africa in the uh, 50s basically there was no television of course there was radio so you'd listen to Wimbledon on the radio and the only tennis that meant anything there was Wimbledon and if somebody and they had lots of very good South African Mm -hmm. players so if they'd been to Wimbledon they were like uh, amazing Mm -hmm. and so Wimbledon had this absolute prestige and this aura about it which I have to tell you I still feel that I mean I really do it hasn't lost any of its uh, <laughs> glory for me. Well, obviously, so you're becoming a very good tennis player, athletic. Um, so 
we should I think we should establish as well at this stage, Virginia, just for the sake, just so there's no um, um, argument about it. You're also a very brainy cove. You go to the University of Sussex, a very modern university, of course, red brick. Yeah. Um, but um, you don't do any of the subjects that I would guess would be traditionally associated with women. Um, you did mathematics and physics, which I think you fly, passed with flying colours, yeah? I didn't pass them with flying colours, but I was, you know, I was pretty good. At, I was very good. I'll give myself that at maths in school. And I always would have liked to have done English and maths. But, you know, in England... Uh, they, we split the yeah. technical things and the artistic things. It's ridiculous. Uh, and it was it was very difficult. That was one of the hardest things. Fortunately, when I went to school in Tunbridge Wells, I had a wonderful headmistress who, who was very sympathetic to me. And so, you know, that helped and the teachers were nice. But uh, they, they highly recommended that I, if I wanted to go to university, I should just have done one or the other, so I was better at maths. And they also highly recommended that it was too stressful to take an Oxbridge uh, entrance exam. So I think I was, and I was very anxious to get my education out of the way. That's your father and your background, isn't it? Yeah, that was my father saying, of course you can't go and stop being educated and go and play tennis. So. I had to, I knew I sort of was obliged to do that, but that is one of the things that I did regret a little bit, that I, it, it might have been sort of interesting. I would have been fabulous to go to Oxford or Cambridge. When you graduate, you uh, go off to become a tennis player. I'm going to ask you this question because I don't know the answer myself. Given, given that you were bright and had done mathematics and all the rest of it, and you, I know from your your life since that you're very clever with finances and things like that. You've never <laughs> left yourself short of a bean, shall we say? Um, do you think, in a, if the, if you were leaving university now, you might have gone off to be a you know run a business or be a CEO or be a scientist, um, or were those those options not open to a woman in the mid '60s? Those options were absolutely not open to a woman. I mean, I think of that constantly with all the fantastic opportunities for women to do anything from business to engineering to, uh, well, I probably wouldn't have been in politics, but, you know, environmental stuff, running a business and engine. I I mean, you just wouldn't really, unless you were complete uh, blue stocking or or nerd, you you would probably, but you would probably have gone into teaching, you know, at a higher level then. So those opportunities were just not uh, there then. And I think, well, I mean, basically, I'm, I don't regret it at all because I <laughs> enjoyed playing tennis, but I feel that it's wonderful for young women that they have equal opportunities. You leave university and you're, you're straight into the tennis. It's the last knockings of the amateur era. We're going to have to explain this to people. Tennis was an amateur sport, at least in theory, and in practice until 1969, was it? 68. 68. Um, so you play at Wimbledon um, as a very young woman in 66 and 67. Um, a recurring theme of this program is going to be your battles with Billie Jean King, Billie Jean Moffat as she was then. She beat Wimbledon in the quarterfinal in 67. Um, talk to me about turning pro. I mean, because that is one thing playing tennis. You still have the background. You might do anything. You might, you know, mm. you're, you're all once, but once you turn professional, that means you're, you're setting yourself on a life path. Well, I think the thought was, you know, and you know how you have these thoughts when you're finishing university and you've got a whole life ahead of you. thought was, well, you play tennis for a couple of years and then you'll do something serious. Well, fortunately, the couple of years 
came and at the end of the couple of years, tennis went open and professional. So then it was an automatic way of continuing because it burgeoned like nobody's business. I don't think the players today have any idea how big tennis got in the mid-70s. And then it, it sort of it's always had a few mini downs, but it was huge in the mid-70s. You know, everybody wanted to see Bjorn Borg and uh, Jimmy Connors and Nastasi and people like that, and the well, women, women we'll, we'll, were great we'll get, too. We'll get, we'll get a chance to talk about, but you know, because it, 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 I don't believe I'm being nostalgic. Um, all industries, all endeavors have their golden moments. We may be going through one at the moment in men's tennis, you know. Right, um, but, definitely. But the mid-70s, both the women and men's games, as you quite rightly point out, were just extraordinarily competitive. They were also we were seeing them in color on television for the first time, and people became, I mean, People became real proper superstars, and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later on. Um, you're successful very, very early in the piece, as early as 1968. You win a first major. I mean, were you, were you expecting to do that? <laughs> no, I really... Uh, I just happened to play out of my mind that tournament. This in is in America York. in 1968. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I, and everybody was playing, and I beat everybody. I mean, I, and including Billie Jean in the final. And I remember... I one thing I remember, I mean, I remember, I do actually remember quite a lot about those matches, but I certainly remember we were sort of late going on on the Saturday night, and I knew that at that time of year in September that the light fails at around 7.30 or something, and I think we went on, you know, close to 6.30, so I was getting so nervous waiting to go on, and because the men's semi-final had taken a long time, and... I, but I remember thinking, you know, I I might never be in the final again. I better win it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know? do you, you, this is not a test of your memory, but a test of what kind of person you are. Can you remember the people you beat in the previous five rounds before beating Billie Jean? I beat Ann Jones. In the semi? I beat Rosie Cassells, who was very good. Yeah. I think I beat Judy Dalton in Taggart, yeah, yeah, and she had just been in the final of Wimbledon that year, so she was. In top well, you, form. You've got the last few rounds. I don't expect you to remember the first two, but do you? Um, no. You beat ladies called uh, Stephanie Defina of the United oh, yeah, States yeah. and Patricia Cody, also an American player. Um, I mean, when you think about the agony we all went through of building up and building up and building up to Andy Murray finally winning a major, I mean, this is extraordinary that you should walk into the professional game and win the U.S. Open. Um, well, I won. I actually won the first open tournament that they had, which mm -hmm. was down in Bournemouth. Um, I mean, the whole. Are we, I, I love talking about the, how open tennis came about because it's so unexpected, really, that it originated in this country of all places where you think it's so conservative and Wimbledon. Because what had happened was that uh, the amateur game was. You know, people were getting paid under the table. Yes. I mean, I don't think I was paid very much money, but a lot of the the people were getting paid some reasonable money. So Herman David, who was chairman of the All England Club, who was really a wonderful man, and uh, I, I always lo got on, I loved him. He, he, and he always was very sweet to me and would say, Virginia, why don't you play on the quarters if it's in your back garden you get so tense on the court so he was you know he was a very sort of simpatico guy and 
what had happened was that in 1962, and they had all those great Australian players, Labour, Rosewall. Lou Hode. Lou Hode, yeah. yeah. And they were all so wonderful, and Gonzalez they had, and... They decided, uh, and I can't, this I can't remember whether it was Jack Kramer who started the professional circuit in the States. So they had eight men or so who were all the top, the cream of the crop, who were playing pro tennis. And they were going, dragging from one city to another and putting down mats to play on. And it was, it was hard, but they made a lot of money. And um, Hammer David got to the point where he said, this is ridiculous. Wimbledon should be the preeminent tournament in the world, and we don't have the top men playing. So he really engineered to get tennis to go open so that both the pros and the amateurs could play. Um, you, you, you're right to say, to say there's a huge difference, but I don't think people should get carried away that people were earning the kind of money that people are earning now for winning tennis tournaments. You won £6,000, still a lot of money, um, but winning the US Open. Six thousand yes. dollars. Really? About, yes, dollars, yes. Yeah. About 40000 in, in in today's money. Um, did it did it change your life? I mean, we it, the world is so different between now and then. Did it change your life winning a major, winning the U.S. Open? Um, well, winning Wimbledon did. Yes, well, we can, <laughs> well, that's undoubtedly the case, and we'll come on to that. But did this did this make? Did you become a celebrity, Virginia? I be I did quite. I became a mini celebrity, <laughs> but you know, as I said, I just happened to play out of my mind for the tournament. I just really played well. and But I didn't really know how I was doing it. You know, we didn't have any coaches then. We didn't have anybody around. You had, I had a couple of very good friends on the tour who were traveling and uh, some of the journalists and people. So, you know, it, it was fun because you traveled with people you liked and knew, but... Um, I didn't, I didn't really understand my tennis, and and the way I w- would always explain myself was that I was, uh, um, y- you know, a sort of, uh, I was definitely, I was talented. I mean, I'm going to give myself that, but I w- was uh, way too emotional, and what I found was that I would, um, if I tried to, just calm down and that then I, I couldn't quite get the fire to play so I had a lot of issues from that side. In the modern game if you won the US Open as a young person your game would be concentrated on, computerised and mostly you get the occasional one one tournament winner but most of these people go on to be in the, you know, at the top of the game for, for some considerable time and yet over the next two or three years until your next victory four years later in a major um, you don't do so well. I mean, you reach semi-finals in the US. You're doing particularly well, but in Wimbledon, you're bombed out in the first round at one stage. Um, what's going on here, with uh, Virginia? I called you Wimbledon there. Yeah. What's going on, Virginia? Oh, golly, I know. I wish I'd had more help. Basically, I wish I'd had more technical help. I wish I'd, there'd been people around who could uh, uh, guide you because I was definitely out there in limbo and feeling the pressure that once you've won a Grand Slam, everybody's after you. They're all trying to get at you. And, you know, I knew I played well. I knew I could play well, but uh, I 
couldn't produce it at the drop of a hat. Because you're still very much involved with the tennis, the modern game, you're one of the world's leading commentators on the modern game, um, it doesn't just seem like somebody banging on about the old days. You're, you're across the whole... So let me try and explain to people, when we see... Let's take Murray out. Let's take Rafa Nadal with his army of psychologists, physiologists, nutritionists, computer experts. Try and compare that to the game that you played in in the, in the early 70s. Well, it just began to start that really with Martina Navratilova. Martina, who was, uh, well, she's 10 years younger than I, but she, we, our, our careers passed because I was sort of a late uh, comer as far as years. But she started having coaches and trainers and uh, various people to help her, and she got her fitness level into the most extraordinary heights. I mean, everybody, we were all fit. And we were quick, and you, you did some training, but nobody did that sort of gym work. I mean, there just weren't really gyms. I mean, you did some <laughs> some of those uh, sort of things that athletes would do, you know, and do climb upstairs or run up hills or something, but there was none, literally none of the upper body work. Did you have a coach in these years? No. I didn't have a coach. You, you just would, did it yourself? It, it, yeah, and you would, if you needed a little help, you'd go and ask somebody like Fred Perry or or Pancho Segura, who was a coach, and you'd say, I need a little help with my serve. Could, please, could you help me? I don't know what's wrong. And Fred would spend half an hour with you, and that was it. Uh, but, I mean, I had, I definitely had some... I mean, I was a little unique in that. Most of these players had more um, technical input. I mean, Billie Jean definitely had quite a lot of lessons, and uh, she was very technically minded. And uh, I'm not sure about Margaret, actually. I don't know, Court, whether she had coaching, but Chris Everett, of course, she comes along, and her father's a coach, so she's very much uh, a disciplined, technically correct player. So that all sort of changed. I mean, finally... Uh, when I did, when I finally won Wimbledon, I mean, I did have bits and pieces of coaching, and I had, I had a coach at that stage, and it made a big difference. The other, the other thing that's, that I think we should talk about at this stage before we get into when your career really, really blossoms, um, is doubles, because um, you're a three-time majors winner in people's mind, but of course. To a people of a certain age, like myself, you're a seven-times major winner because the doubles titles were just as important. Almost as important. Almost. Almost as important as singles titles. Mm -hmm. Why has doubles gone out of fashion? And also talking about playing doubles, you, you were very lucky, or she was very lucky, whichever way it goes, <laughs> you played with Margaret Court, the great Australian player, one of the greatest players I was ever. very lucky to play with her. <laughs> uh, Margaret was an amazing player. You know, she was... In today's game, she isn't that tall, but she was like 5'10 and a, a bit, and 5'10 uh, and a half, I think. And but she had long arms and long legs, so she seemed her reach was enormous, and she had a an excellent serve. Everything about her game was good, and she was a very determined competitor. And Margaret would get very nervous, but she found a way to overcome that. I mean, the players who were great. I mean, maybe my heroine, but but I only just passed in her careers was Maria Buena because she was just such an incredibly elegant player. Why did you play doubles? Was it for competitiveness? Was it for the money? What, what, why were you playing doubles? You ever, you pl no, not for the money. Everybody played. Everybody played singles, doubles and mixed. So you always played. And so, you know, maybe the matches weren't as uh, physically exhausting because they're so long now and so 
physical, but you always played three matches. And then doubles uh, sort of began to lose its appeal just because these matches have become so strenuous physically that particularly the men, if they were yes. playing five sets, they didn't want to spend more time on the court. And yet the public clearly loves doubles in tennis. I mean, you, you see the tournaments. Um, now, whether it's because the, the, the interaction with a partner brings people's personality out a bit more or whether it's because they're not so intense, people do like doubles, don't they? Well, when you, I, it's one of the real oddities of the game that that we can't in the modern game get doubles up at the top because it's what most amateurs do is play doubles. They love doubles, and some of the doubles is fantastic in the Davis Cup, for example, or when it's a deciding rubber, or at uh, the O2 in London when they have the end of the year event. So <clears throat> it's it's. It's a great game. You uh, reached the final in the U.S. doubles in 1969 um, and again at uh, Wimbledon the following year, uh, but you lost both those finals. Um, in the first one, um, you lost to uh, Darlene Hard and Francoise Durr, a lady who you also went on to partner. I think for the sake of the younger people listening, we, because her name will come up again, we ought to explain something <laughs> about perhaps the most unique tennis player yeah. I can remember. Francoise Durr, tell us, um, you played against, uh, and she beat you in this final, so what we're going to say is going to surprise people. She was a little French woman, superb player and all the rest of it, but she couldn't serve. Oh, no, her serve was like flat. And she smoke. literally patticated it back across the net and let the game start there. I mean, you couldn't do it now, could you? Every, no, everybody teased her. But Frankie, well, I played doubles. We got to the final of Wimbledon, but we didn't win it. But uh, um, the problem was if you were playing with her, the best weapon from the opponents would be to nail the ball right at you. Yeah. You know, and then, but it was a very difficult serve to return because this ball's coming at you with no action on it at all. And you have to get your body around, your feet around it. But knowing how it was to play with her, how intimidated you got at the net when she was serving, on the, I, I, I gradually learned that when I was on the other side of the net, that that was what I had to do, nail it at the person in the net. But she had a backhand that was like a laser, and it was flat, but but it came over so fast, and she would, you know, some of the players today would get remarkable because they're bending their knees to such an extent. She had this incredible knee bend on the back and just drill these balls past you and it'd skim the net and be very deceptive. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, Virginia, um, we talked in the last section about um, uh, a, a time in your career when you weren't perhaps as successful as it was, uh, we thought you might be after you won that first Open. In this section, I'm delighted to say we're going to return to almost continuous winning of majors. Um, you won the Australian in 1972. What do you remember about that tournament? Well, I think it, it was very confusing that year because I think we played it over at the end of of uh, 71 and the beginning of 72. So I think the final was on the 1st of January. It started and on Boxing Day and went through to the 3rd, the 3rd of January, actually. So, yes, it was over the holiday period, yeah. yeah because I had to... Uh, I had to play Yvonne Goolagong in the final and I always had trouble with Yvonne. I mean, I just just was I, I you know I just uh, she was one of the people she was so laid back and she'd always come up with something unexpected and you never knew what was going on so anyway I had trouble with her I mean I, I had some pretty good wins against her but I could also lose to her so I think it was New, Year, New Year's Day and yes, I'd the had men's to went on to the third, yeah. I had to welcome in the New Year's Eve and I think I had a slight hangover the next day <laughs> which was exactly right because I was so I, I was so cross with myself that I thought you'd better concentrate because you don't want to blame yourself for losing because of well, that I'm, I'm, but, glad, I'm glad to hear that you did actually go <laughs> and have a proper party it would be uh, it would be regarded as unprofessional now but I'm glad you said that yeah I I'm, you know, you. It was definitely unprofessional, but I'm sure I was uh, looking after myself pretty healthily in general. The Australian you mentioned um, had only just. It wasn't always thought of as the same as the um, as Wimbledon, the French, and and the United States title. Um, Compare it to winning the the US for you. Was it was it as big a deal? Well, by then I think it was uh, had become a much bigger deal. All the players were beginning to play down there. I mean, there'd been several years minus the top players, but um, it, you know, a lot of the you have to give a lot of the credit for the success of the Grand Slams to a certain Philippe Chatrier, who the centre court of Roland Garros is, of course, named after him. And I was very good friends with him, and uh, he was—I knew his his passion for the game and for making the Grand Slam special. And at that time, they were also having some of the moneyed events in the states, and these little tours and things. And they were sort of taking a direct bite out of the tradition of the game and so he was very anxious to get the Australian back in the fold as one of the great tournaments so uh, all of them the, from that moment on the Grand Slam sort of started to really take off and I've never they've never stopped I mean they just have gone gangbusters compared with a lot of the just the regular tournaments. You mentioned Yvonne Gulagong. I often when I hear people talking about this era of women's tennis, they talk about yourself, they talk about Margaret Court, they talk about Navratilova, they talk about Chris Evert, people are coming down the line now. Um, Yvonne Gulagong, Yvonne Corley, as I think she became, she, she get, I mean, is it me or is she, did she get written out of these conversations for some reason? Because she was a superstar, wasn't she? 
uh, was everybody loved her. They loved watching her. She was so laid back. She was a nice person. She she wasn't oozing competitiveness. It was you know that lovely Australian uh, uh, attitude. And but she was a, a little inconsistent. So although she, golly, she won a bunch of Grand Slams. I mean, did she win? Yeah, maybe. plenty. She won because she's definitely won Wimbledon a couple of times. Not sure if she won the U.S. Open, but she, I'm sure she won the French and obviously the Australian as well. So, uh, I, but but her lack of consistency probably took her out of, of that real, real the real top echelon where you would consider that Margaret Court, uh, Maria Buena would be in there, Billie Jean King, Chris Evert. Navratilova of that generation yeah. and then of course there are plenty in this generation we should talk about one of those players because in this uh, uh, you, you win um, the Australian in 1972 uh, you lost uh, in France um, uh, you lo- uh, and, and in Wimbledon and in the United States you lost all of those um, tournaments to, to, to the same person to Billie Jean King um, you, you, you put her in that bracket she, she is an all time great yeah Oh, yeah, I have to. I mean, I don't. Um, I, I I think it's it, there was a competition, or, or people were <laughs> going through a draw just recently, and it was very difficult. Where you put in people who were great players, and it was very difficult to come up with who was uh, who was consistently the best. If you incorporated matches on clay, hard, and grass. But uh, Billie Jean, she was a tough competitor. She was very, very solid in big matches. I mean, I had, I had, didn't have a terrible record against her. She was a couple of years older, which um, obviously makes a difference because when you're starting, you're going to you're lose losing to her. Yeah. But but uh, you have to classify her as one of the great players. And she did all this, of course. So you, uh, she achieved much of what she did in her career while at the same time being at the absolute forefront of political uh, activism, banging on a, that's not the right phrase, campaigning for the women's um, mm-hmm. uh, tennis to, to be taken more seriously and for the money to be... Because mm-hmm. um, uh, whenever we, we want to argue about th- three sets versus five sets, the discrepancy in the prize money mm-hmm. at this time was ridiculous. I mean, the women were almost being expected to turn up for peanuts compared to their male counterparts. So she did all that as well. The following year, 1973, is an incredible year for you. In an era when the doubles titles were, as we say, as important almost as singles titles, in 1973, you and Margaret Court won in Australia, won in France, and won in the United States. You won all three. Uh, you won three of the four majors. Um, I'll ask you what happened in the fourth one in a minute, but uh, uh, you were, this is, obviously these are huge achievements. I was. I remember being absolutely thrilled to bits to win the French because you know clay was a difficult surface for me, and uh, I, I. I mean, I, I just remember it being like, wow! I actually won a major. In, well, it was doubles, but I was very ecstatic about that. So yeah, okay. I mean, it was, it was difficult they, 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 on the clay because you'd gone out in the third round of the singles to somebody I'm, I have to be honest I've never heard of. Plenty of those. Odile de Rubin. 
No. I can't even remember. You don't have a reunion forget, with her. You don't no, have a reunion with her. You forget about, about people. You know, it's so interesting with the French in particular. It's interesting with all the Grand Slams. I mean, Wimbledon, they talk about how the courts aren't as quick as they were, that they slowed down the grass, that it's almost like a hard court now, and the ball bounces up, and it's... It doesn't favor serving and volleying like it did. And then the French, they've started to use really lively balls and they cover the courts when it rains. Well, when we were playing, oh, you would get every weather condition, including rain. And if it rained, always windy, but if it rained, they would toss more of that terre battue on the court, no covers on it. So it would just get like chocolate blancmange actually and, and, and the ball ends up looking um, well yeah. the ball would be kind of be- not beige a, a terracotta colour yeah absolutely yeah. red and uh, it, it was very difficult the people who did well and if you played somebody who just retrieved and retrieved and pushed the ball back and you couldn't generate any power against it it was it was really a Bad. Well, it was really bad for me because I was an aggressive player. Um, looking back on these three doubles titles in one year, um, again, it's hard to make to let people understand in the modern world how important they were. But to you, how do you compare them compared to your singles titles? Uh, not even close. Okay, so you're you're going along yeah. with that argument to yeah. some extent, yeah? Yeah, I mean the twin singles is infinitely. I, I mean, you get a, a thrill out of winning doubles, but. It's, uh, you know, to win a singles is just unbelievable. You had a kind of disappointing year in 1974, second round exits at the French Open and the US Open. However, you came very close to reaching your first Wimbledon final, um, losing in three sets to Olga Moritzova of the then Soviet Union. Um, I'm sure it's, uh, it's stuck in your mind. <laughs> Oh, that always uh, worried me, that loss. That was one of the losses that I really... I mean, there were plenty of losses at Wimbledon. I mean, I, it was very seemed to be very difficult for me to concentrate at Wimbledon and to isolate myself. You know, you're at home, you have all your friends around. It, it's very distracting. So that's why I think, in general, it's easier for a home player to play somewhere else because they just get on with it. So it was difficult at Wimbledon, and I never... And then you get nervous and all. And that match, I was I was playing fine, and I had a very good record against Olga, but she was, she was uh, obviously a tough competitor. And I tell you, I, you know, I I guess I just choked because I was uh, up in in that match. I can't remember if I was a uh, four one up in the third or four one up in the second with a set, and and I definitely choked. And and we had several rain delays, and you know, the, just a combination of the exhaustion and the tension just got to me and I always feel and I feel that's so true with today's players is that the the motivation has to overbalance the intrepidation because everybody's nervous and if you're not playing very well that's even worse but if you really want to win you find a way to win you talked about the distractions of Wimbledon you 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 particularly for you your home and all the rest of it people are coming and going um, we're all become very used in recent years to Henman Hill and Murray Mound. Was it the same pressure on you? Were we still desperate to find a British winner at Wimbledon? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a huge amount of pressure. So I totally understood the Tim Henman and the Andy Murray pressure. And 
uh, I, I mean, you know, all the press, it would, all the headlines would be Ginny Fizz or, you know, something like that, or Ginny and No Tonic and, you know, whatever. <laughs> hey. Or whatever you did. Whatever you did. Uh, and so, and you, you can't avoid it. I mean, finally, I did learn to get somebody to edit through what the papers were saying because somebody would tell you otherwise. So you, as soon as you get somebody to sort of alert you, you get somewhat desensitized. But one of the things that really helped me to win Wimbledon in 77 was that suddenly there was somebody else who was getting was in the limelight in, in British tennis, and that was Sue Barker. Well, come on if I made to Sue Barker's emergence in, in, in just a second. But having lost to Moritz over by freezing yourself, it's noticeable she, she, she herself did terrible in the final. She lost six love, six four to to Chris Evert. Do you think that's the Wimbledon got away for you? Could you have beaten Evert as well? Ah, uh, you know, on grass I could, I could sometimes beat Chris, but Chris was very tough, and she won so many Wimbledons in a row. She was a, definitely the, a, a, such a tough uh, player and. Um, so I'm not sure that I would have beaten her in the final, but at least I'd have been in the final. That would have been something. You could have found out, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean Olga, you have to hand it to her. She played a she played a good match against me, and I choked. The following year, you won another doubles title, and we should get them all in. The last one you won, um, uh, when you won the U.S. again with Margaret Court, beating the uh, I guess the most famous women's double pair. You might you might put me right on that, but I think um, Rosemary Casals and Billie Jean King were regarded as uh, the queens of, of that particular discipline, weren't they? Well, in that era, they were definitely yeah. were. I mean, you think of uh, Navratilova and Shriver coming along later, and, and then the there were Williams other teams. They played yeah. together as well. But um, I I always remember that final at the U.S. Open because, you know, they. I think we played that on the Sunday. I think the singles was over, the women's singles was played on the Saturday. Then they played the women's doubles, followed by the men's singles, and they always had this ridiculous order of play in New York in order to accommodate Sunday football. And so the men would start at four or something, and we played this such a fantastic match. And that we overran in, and into television, so it was really fun because well, I we. Think, I think the scoreline suggests it was an amazing game, seven five two six seven six, and you ran and you did. It's in my notes here, it says, and they interrupted the American football schedule, which is uh, a major crime. Well, what they what they did was we interrupted the start of the men's, uh, okay. so that they finished the football. They yeah, came ah. to the tennis, and so we got on TV for a tie break or something. So that was that was sort. Of sweet, and uh, um, yeah, that was that was really a fun one to win. So I should let you do the interviewing on this. Of course, you're a very experienced broadcaster. Because my next set of questions was involving um, how the game, which yourself and Margaret Court and Billie Jean had kind of dominated, was suddenly getting new influx of people, um, interesting new players for you to compete against. Obviously, Martina Navratilova had just arrived as a, a youngster from a, a place we weren't used to getting players from Eastern Europe. But now, of course, they just they're on a conveyor belt out of Eastern Europe into the top of the women's game. And also Sue Barker. And I think we should talk about Sue here because um, these days people think she's just a game show host, but she wasn't, was she? <laughs> oh, no, Sue was a terrific player. She had a massive forehand. She she was brought up in Devon and she was taught by this uh, guy who was quite famous, really, as a tennis coach. And, and she was a very good player. And 
obviously she was the great white hope that year in 1977. So what it did for me was uh, because we were both uh, in the semifinals and I played mine first, fortunately, and uh, I, but it meant that I could concentrate just get on with the tennis rather than fretting that I had all the pressure on me. And of course she won in France. In, yeah. She won the French Open in 1976. She did. People will say um, that there, were, there was a year when they, for various reasons that all the top players weren't necessarily there but I, unfortunately when you look down the history books the name just bounced oh, no. out. I session. mean th- listen she deserved to win that. I mean granted uh, team tennis was going on in the States and that was uh, another of the horrors for Philippe Chatrier, who was uh, wanted to keep the purity of the game or the tradition. And uh, so all the top players, uh, I mean, Martina, Chris, Billie Jean, I mean, I, I would include myself in there, except I wasn't a very good uh, clay court player, but those were my best years, actually. So I, in a way, I was uh, sad that I didn't play the French in the best sort of, uh, in a period of my life when I was finally getting professional and understanding what it was all about to compete and to think correctly on the court. If you, if you might indulge me, um, I was uh, my first year at university chasing around after punk rock gigs, um, and but you couldn't help feel the build-up to, to Wimbledon that year. It was the Queen's Silver Jubilee. It was an incredible, second very, very, very hot summer in succession. And the country was kind of, I mean, it's very hard to describe Britain in the 70s. It was a it was a, a mad melting pot of falling away from the austerity post the war. And before we got into the kind of technocratic Britain and we're all going to work hard and all the rest of it. And yet everything came, all those things that I've talked about came to a point of light um, in, the, in the two weeks of Wimbledon, in particular in your own victory. Nobody was necessarily predicting it. There were great players ahead of you in the rankings. Everett and Navratilova. New players were coming into the, into the game, like Sue Barker, who we mentioned before. Billie Jean King was still very much a, a threat. Um, so did you, did you feel under extra pressure because of the Jubilee and all that? Oh, golly, absolutely the opposite. It was uh, such motivation for me because, you know, I I had played Wimbledon 15 times before. I mean, I played, I probably would have played it 16 times, but you weren't allowed to play until you were 16, and then I had to qualify. So I'm 31 years old, and I know that the last two years, I mean, in 75 I was ready to win Wimbledon, and I played a match against Yvonne Goulagong on the centre court where uh, I think it was 8-6 in the third or something, and she just came up with some... I did everything right, and she came up with some magic, and uh, I lost that. So, you know, I just wasn't wasn't meant to win that year. But I get to 77, and I suddenly really... You know, you have to... In those days, you actually had to sign, like, an entrance form about six weeks before... And I'm thinking, and I'm saying out loud, oh, golly, you know, it's a pity I never perform at my best at Wimbledon. And then I realized uh, that the Queen was going to be there. And then I thought, well, if the Queen is going to be there, I better be there too. We should make the point that the Queen is not a tennis fan. She doesn't like it, does she? She had been the previous time she'd been in 52. Now she's been one more time, but she's... Well, she's had 60 years in which... 70 years in which to go. She's gone three times. I mean, you know... And, I know, and it's like and, going to the dentist yeah, for her. Yeah, <laughs> it's very boring. She prefers four-legged. Uh, yes, yeah, she does. She does. Athletes. Yeah. And 
So, you know, that was such motivation. And it was, as well as being the Queen's Jubilee and the Queen being there, it was also the centenary of the tournament. So all these things just sort of, you know, tipped the balance in the right direction. So it overcame the nerves and uh, the determination. I just wasn't going to, I wasn't, you know, and I didn't get distracted. I kept myself very blinking. It was one match, one, six to go, you know, and just, I really concentrated. I which is something that had been hard for me to be really committed. You're, you're obviously, you wouldn't win Wimbledon if you weren't a competitive personality. And you've also proved that you're a competitive personality. Because in the break, I said to you, would you like to tell me, or would you like me to tell you who you beat in each round? And you said, no, let's see if I can remember. Now, can you remember the first round? Joe Dury. You beat Britain's Joe Dury. <laughs> and Emma. Pretty straightforward, 6-2, six, 6-2. Two, six, two. It's probably because she said, she's said so many times that she played me in her first Wimbledon and she was 17. And so, right, second I, one is bit, uh, someone I've never, I can't recall at all. Well, you better tell me the second. South African lady. Um, she was called Yvonne Vermark. Oh, yeah, Yvonne Vermark. And I, I had quite a tough match against her. No, I thought, I wondered if it was Vermark because she was a feisty little character. And tough to play, but I know I know that I I, I mean I played in the quarterfinals. Oh, sorry, sorry, I beg your pardon. We missed Betsy Nagelson. I've, I've been a fool. Second round, you beat Betsy Nagelson of the USA. That sounds more like it than yeah. Yvonne. Yvonne Van Mark. The next game, uh, can you remember who you played? Uh, I'm guessing by this name, it's a Romanian person. Um, Virginia Rasic. No, no, it's Mariana Simonescu. Oh, Simonescu, yeah. But you must have that. I'm surprised you don't remember. I'll tell you for why. Because the score in that game was nine seven six three tough game yeah I guess yeah okay quarterfinals then I played Rosie Cassells in the quarterfinals and Rosie was very much she was a wonderful cross court player and she was definitely capable of beating people (laughs) she certainly was and then I had to play Chris yeah and uh, you know Chris had won she was uh, I think she was the top seed I I just um I sort of, I, I did have a coach at that time, a guy called Jerry Teagarden, and he he had sort of helped me work out a strategy. He said, I see you playing her and winning, and then he said, you'll go back to what you feel like doing. So just stick to it, and I played the best match. That was the best match I ever played on a, uh, it was a very good game match of you, tennis. You won the first set, 6-2. She won the second, 6-4. And uh, somehow you conjured up enough uh, brilliance to win the the final set six one to take you to the final. This is already an incredible fairy tale, not just for you but within the country. But we were building up to an all British final. Yeah, right. The Sue Barker played Betty Stover yeah. of uh, the Netherlands yeah. in the other semi final. Which would you have preferred to win that that match? Oh, I think I it would have been very tough to play Barker. Very tough. I think I was relieved that it wasn't Sue. Uh, you know, just because it's so awkward playing uh, a compatriot. And, uh, you know, I knew I had a beautiful record against Betty. I I had just, and I had done a lot of hard work struggling in matches against her and making it previously and making sure that I won. And so I knew that that would pay off when it really mattered. But, uh, you know, she, she'd beaten Martina. Yeah. And from the following year, Martina was sort of taking over along with Chris. 
So you play Betty Stover in the final. We've already built up some of it. It is the 100th anniversary of Wimbledon. It's the Queen's Silver Jubilee. Um, it, it, everything is coming to a place. It's also uh, unique. I think it's... Uh, I don't know if it's happened since. You'll be able to tell me. Um, it was the first final played between two uh, women over the age of 30 since t- uh, 1913. I mean, tennis gets younger and younger. It's very unlikely that, that we're ever going to see that again. Um, I know. That's not unlikely. Yeah, is that right? No. I mean, all the players are getting... Oh, because they've gone back. They've gone back to being. The the money's so good, they don't retire now. Yeah, and they have ways of staying fit and motivation again. But I mean, I think in the French this year, there's 17 women over 30 in the draw, and I'm sure there are more men. But but it was very unusual. We were both, um, uh, you know, sort of towards the end of our our careers. What's the build-up? Enormous. I mean, did you just have your breakfast and walk over, and or, or was it very, very different? Uh, oh, it was like you know, fighting the whole time to keep a lid on your emotions, and uh, you know, I think I actually saw the. Uh, uh, we had a dressing room at Wimbledon. It's changed now, but we had a dressing room where you could look out of the window and you'd see the main um, main entrance and. And I think, I mean, what I did do is I went into the, into the stand and just um, sat there quietly just to absorb the feeling. So I was, I was very well rehearsed for it. It was something that I finally learned to do. And as I said, the last, last couple of years, I'd finally got professional and was really um, working hard for every single match that I played. I wasn't just going on court and playing. I was uh, preparing against my opponents mentally. I was visualizing I was doing a lot more mental work and I wish I'd known about that early in my career you know you that I mean if, if I look back now and, and with any regrets I mean thank goodness I won Wimbledon because I can't really have any regrets but you know you think boy what a waste of a lot of matches just because you didn't apply yourself in the full uh, amount that you could and you know I have to say that although tennis today is so competitive, it's there's so many so many good players. The depth of the game is enormous. You know, there's still the same principles that exist. I mean, technically, it may be different because uh, the rackets are different. The equipment's changed, yeah. I mean, if I tried to play with a wooden racket like we had at Wimbledon, you can't generate any pace at all. I mean, you had to be technically. Uh, I, I mean, the techniques were different. People had different techniques, but you still had to be very accurate. Now, it's much, it is more forgiving with these new rackets. There's no question. Well, all this preparation and pre- being doing everything right and everything, Virginia, um, you lost the first set. Um, and could you feel the whole nation turning their back? Think, oh, here we go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, golly, been there, done that too many times. So, But I, you know, I... As I said, I had worked very hard in previous matches against Betty, so I also had the feeling that she couldn't beat me, you know, which is, uh, and tennis is very much like that. You know, it it happens today, it's always happened. If there's one player that uh, you have a problem against, it's very hard to cross that line. So I, I, I got ahead in the second set, I know, and then the next thing I knew, I mean, I got an early break, and the next thing I knew it was three all, and then from three all it was, um, I was in the, what they call the zone. Do you, do, you, do you know you're in the zone when it's happening? Very good question. 
Because as soon as you know you're in the zone, you come out of it. An hour and a half into the programme, finally. A very good question. Because yeah. <laughs> um, you're right, because from 3-3 three, three, in the second set, you only lose one more game. You mm. clearly overpower her, overskill her, whatever it was. But do you know you're doing it? Oh, I mean, I just... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you you have these patches and that they do say being in the zone, but that it's when you just are completely you're not conscious really you just are sort of i mean you're concentrating but it, it, you're doing everything right it's everything that you worked at and it happens but the moment you think i'm in the zone that's when you come out of it well look um we'll talk about the effect it had on your life in just a second but you did get in that zone you beat betty stover 6-3 in that second set then 6-1 in the third. When you see or hear it, does it still um, excite you? Do you still got the hair standing on your head? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. There was, you know, when it actually happens, you are obviously you delirious, but um, it's sort of like an out-of-body experience because suddenly this whole place is erupting and... You feel as if you're not really yourself. You don't know whether you're part of them or part of what. It's, it was the most, I, it, it was the most emotional atmosphere, biggest atmosphere I'd ever experienced. Apart from when I'd watched or heard the World Cup in 1966, when you know, because everybody was just above and beyond ecstatic, and so you actually you actually feel pretty small because you just suddenly think. All this for me? Well, you, you get big again when, the, when they come forward. Uh, in this case, the Queen of England comes forward um, with the uh, the great big gong, the uh, Venus Rosewater dish uh, presented to you by Queen Elizabeth. Um, there's a couple of things I've got to ask you about that. Uh, I've been told not to come home by my other half, who uh, was a little girl hmm. when that all happened. And uh, what she said, one of her very first memories of sport is that pink cardigan you wore. And I needed, my eyes nearly <laughs> popped out of my head when you walked into the studio earlier on. That slightly pinky. <laughs> pink purple cardigan is not a million miles away from it is it you're right that's so <laughs> funny um have you still well, got it the pink yes, cardigan yes i have I, and they also they made another one so it's in the wimbledon museum i think so um well the thing about that was you know it's pretty intimidating when the queen's sitting up there and you, you they tell you how what, that you have to curtsy whatever sure as you walk in when you carrying flowers but you turn around and I'm wearing this Teddy Tinling made our clothes and it was cashmere it was old rose the color and with my initials embroidered on it and the dress had little stripes of the same color so it was a, a nice outfit and you turn around to curtsy and you see that the Queen's got the same color on so it had to be a good omen there <laughs> and the other thing is after that when we heard that vast sea of applause that uh, tumbled down onto you on the on the mm. court and then an extraordinary British moment the crowd sang for she's a jolly good fellow it was so funny because you know I mean now I mean in those days the crowd was quite reserved I mean not like now where no. they they you know are very exuberant so it was pretty exuberant <laughs> and um, they sang and then you know of course the Queen's giving talking to me and I haven't a clue what she's saying because it's deafening the noise out there so that always tickled me because I I have to politely ask her to repeat herself and I still didn't know what she was saying so I had to lip read 
Did it bother you? Um, we'll talk about how it changed your life. I mean, did it bother you uh, in the build-up to Andy Murray and, and Tim Henman as well that they were always talking about, uh, oh, we haven't had a Wimbledon champion for you know since uh, Fred Perry, but we had had we'd had several mm. Andrew Mortimer and Jones yeah. uh, yourself, but you were the but you were the last human being British human being to have won a, a Wimbledon title. Did it bother you? I, uh, a little bit. It bothered a lot of people more than it bothered me, but I, I sort of got used to it. But it, it wasn't accurate you know if you're going to say it's the last British uh, champion you have to define it as a man or woman yeah you do and you can say he's the last British male champion yeah but, you know, yeah. yeah well exactly so didn't I, the Prime Minister make the same mistake um, in congratulating Andy Murray in the House of Commons he, he also said yeah that. I think somebody gave him grief for that <laughs> how did it change your life Virginia well I mean, that's also a question that I have been asked before, and it's a very thought-provoking question, and as time goes by, it you know, things even change more. But what it did do, more than give you a claim and all the rest of it, it proved to me that if I really set out to do something, I could do it. So it was a tremendous sense of satisfaction, which then gives you a much more innate sense of uh, of confidence in yourself. So that was the biggest thing. I mean, obviously, to win, especially for an English girl, to win Wimbledon means that nobody ever forgets it. You know, you, you win Wimbledon, so you, in people's consciousness, um, I mean, even even now, after all these years, and um, and that's not only is it nice, but it um, it obviously gives you opportunities that you would definitely not have had. So all in all, I can highly recommend it. You were in your thirties, or just in your thirties, when you won the uh, the Wimbledon. And so we, what we're talking about here, I guess, is um, the rest of your career falling away very gently from the, from that peak. Um, but it could have been different. You nearly defended the title the following year. I did all right the following year, and I know I was, I sort of asked, or oh, I was sort of told that I was flopped a, a little bit, you know, by people close to me, but that I could have won because I, that was actually, in many ways, I know you said it was number two in the world in '75, but '78 was actually, I think, my most successful year, my most consistent year. And I was number two in the world that year, and I had wins against Martina and all. And I think, and this is something that comes into my mind, not about that so much as watching the players today and remembering how hard it is as you get a bit more mature to dig deep all the time. Because in order to beat people, you have to make your mind just control everything. I mean, virtually every shot you're hitting, every thought, what you're doing and all the rest of it. And you, you know, sometimes you just can't make that effort. I think when I think when you're younger, you go out there and you're just spontaneous. And uh, I mean, you've been taught how to play and all and which shots to do when. But you as you get a little older and you you recognize what's necessary, it's it's a 
tough call. And you look at the people like Roger Federer now, and he's so brilliant. But you can see that sometimes he just isn't quite prepared to make that. He has medal. other things in his life. He's got a family and kids. He's, I mean, he can't. Drive. It's not all about him driving every last ounce of blood out of his own body, is it? It can't be anymore. Correct. It That's can't be. Correct. You lost the semi-finals to Chris Evert at uh, eight six six two. Um, obviously, the first set was the, the critical thing there. Very close. Yeah. Well, Chris was quite a competitor, and Chris was uh, Chris, and that uh, she was uh, unbelievably good, and went and she won so many titles, and what a career she had. We, we we'll talk about eventually about the fact that you uh, you, you had a very long uh, career. You played twenty four years at Wimbledon. I mean, nobody has has gone anywhere near that. I mean, twenty four uh, consecutively, as you say. If you'd been let at fifteen, you'd have had twenty five. Um, but I want to talk about tennis um, immediately after you won Wimbledon and through the next five or six years. Let's say the late the, the mid to late seventies into the early eighties. It is easy, uh, and we all do it. Um, and you and I who work in, in sports media should be careful not to do too much of it. It's easy to nostalgize about that period in tennis history, but it was. I'm sorry, they'd got the, they'd organized the professional game. Television had popularized the sport globally, and it was a proper golden age in the women's game. Martina Navratilova, Chris Evert, others in the men's game. Borg, McEnroe, Connors, and others. It was this was land of the giants, wasn't it? I, I, there's no question, and I don't think it's being nostalgic, really. I just think it's being historically accurate because uh, some of these eras are just uh, phenomenal. And uh, you know, you also had in that mix in the men, you had Nastasi, who was uh, such a character. So and Stan Smith won Wimbledon the one year. So you had. People with very different styles, personalities, and you know what's happened with the with the newer equipment where everybody hits the ball so hard that technically people have started to get much more similar and play a similar game. Well, you had so much variety then, and as you say, with the television coming into being, and it was as if everybody wanted to demystify everything. They wanted to find out every little nugget of new info they could about Wimbledon, about uh, the French, about the players, about, I remember Bjorn Borg, you know, they, they were so intrigued by him that there were one article of another trying to find some flaw in him or something weird and you know they never could he was very reserved very wonderful and uh, just beyond um and i think the players um were allowed to be um, not allowed to be it's not right they the game uh Left an opening for for their personality to emerge, and it's, I'm trying I'm trying to say they're a bit robotic. Some of the ones that are very good at tennis now. Discreetly put. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there were situations with McEnroe and Nastasi, which were uh, maybe it wouldn't be allowed now. And um, but the, game, I, the game's no better for the for the extra discipline, is it? Really. I think they, it depends on who is uh, uh, executing the orders. I mean, you know, I think it's, I think, you know, you think of somebody like Rafa taking rather a long time, and I think they had to speed that up. And and you generally, I, I, I certainly would have 
preferred it if we'd got warnings for throwing rackets because it would have made me <laughs> calm down much sooner. But, you know, if you could get away with it, you could get away with it. But, uh, you know, the game is magnificent now, but it, it, but you don't want to forget that that was a great era because it was just sort of burgeoning and and uh, the it had opened up to become professional, so the money was suddenly making things even bigger and better. Um, you, you played on till you were 38. Um, and I think I played my last match when I was just coming up for 40. Well, because perhaps I should raise uh, even my hat even higher in your general direction. Because I was quite, I, I was quite pleased with myself that I got through to the weekend or something, or the second week, the round of 16, and I played somebody good on the centre court because I was glad I didn't lose out in the stick somewhere, which is which nearly happened. Well, uh, and you know, you you played on t- till you were 40. Then, as you say, um, you've uh, started working for the BBC. You were elected to the Wimbledon committee the first woman so to be um you've got the obe all this is happening in the 80s let me ask you a more difficult question to be devoted to a sport where you have no backup system this is the days before um coaches and uh, we talked about the entourage they all have now um and i know you're a notoriously private person do you think it um it uh, took away your chance to have more of a of a personal life um you know everybody that was a very regular question <laughs> you know, sacrifice to play, you must have have to sacrifice so much. And, you know, the simple answer to that is, as soon as you don't enjoy it, it is a sacrifice. But while you're enjoying it, and, uh, you know, I was never like without my close friends and uh, support system. So I was, um, I, you know, I was lucky. I, I, and I, I think, I think, you know, what the luckiest thing for me was that I did well late in my career because, uh, you know, it's all very well to be a winner when you're 18 and then nothing happens after that. I mean, I think I was very lucky to have my best years towards the end. As I said before, it would be uh, a dereliction of duty not to ask her about the way things are in tennis, not as in comparison with the game that she played so well in all those years, but because it's still very much her living and her passion. I know she get very, still got very excited about the game, Virginia. Oh, I love it. I love being involved. I love watching the players. I love um, uh, assessing them. And probably as you get a little further away, you can allow yourself to be a little bit more critical or analytical in, in, uh, uh, you know, actually saying what you see and what's lacking. And so much of the game is psychological now. And so I think as time goes by, you really appreciate that and you realize that every player uh, has has to do a lot of work on that side to make themselves believe and but boy there have been some I mean it's another great era we're going through I was going to ask you about that let's talk about the women's game first if I may the men's game it's clear that we're into another golden age um, the women's game I mean, there's some very famous tennis players out there for various reasons. Uh, Maria Sharapova, whether it's uh, it's her fantastic good looks or her range of lollipops that you can buy now <laughs> in shops. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki, for various reasons, has been in the news. Um, is there a danger that the women's game, for the last decade almost, has been almost almost overrun by Serena Williams? Uh, yes. I have to say that that's my honest answer, is that... Uh, there's so many good players out there, but Serena scares them, and so 
everybody talks only about Serena. Uh, Serena's a, a, a magnificent player, but I mean, you know, she's definitely shouldn't overshadow the likes of a Steffi Graf or, or the previous generation. Sure. But, um, you know, I, if she can come up with more Grand Slams this year and next year, you have to you have to put her in the category of one of maybe the best because she's she played you know we we already talked about how you when you're younger you just go on court and you want to win and you play and you don't think about it and she was a little um she missed some things now she's dedicated herself which is something that you finally actually quite enjoy doing when you're over 30 because you realize you've only got a few more years left. And she's been such a much better and complete player and more fun to watch in the last, I would say, two, maybe three years. So so it's all there for her, and she deserves it if she can get it, but she's she sort of started off on a slightly higher platform, and so it's been hard for everybody else to catch her. Well, she changed the women's game because um, she's clearly, she, she's built differently from other women. The women. Stronger. She's a, she's a more... She's a more muscular human being, um, and we've had very well, muscular Martina, players. Yeah, Martina um, was, and Emily Moresmo, You know, they. Mm. Um, but uh, will she change the way the women's game is going to be played, or when she goes, Serena, will she be seen as a one-off, and we'll be back to the uh, the lean, lithe kind of game that we've been watching with other people play? Uh, no, I mean uh, the other players have all caught up with her. It's just that she has this absolutely spectacular serve. I mean, really a foolproof serve and nobody has managed to generate that sort of power and accuracy as consistently as she but um, I, yeah no I mean she is a very unusual unusually talented athlete out there and uh, but you know you you look at Sharapova and Sharapova can compete every which way except on the serve and that happens uh, with the other players as well we talked about the men's game in the in the period of Connors uh, and McEnroe, etc., and Astazi, uh, beyond Borg. There's an argument that what we've seen in the past three or four years, obviously with Federer and Nadal, Djokovic, our own Andy Murray, even people like Thomas Burdich now, and uh, and uh, the, are we seeing? It, it's hard. For, it, it, let me ask the question: Is this the great? Are this the greatest group of men's players who've ever been around together? I have to say, it is. I mean, I think you're going all the way back to the era when the Australians were so good: Labour, Emerson, uh, Hogue, Newcomb, yeah. etc. Yeah, exactly. When because that was a clique of very fine players and very fine competitors and extremely fit and fun. So, but these, I mean, for Roger to be still playing as well as he is and he he is superb I mean there's always a debate about Roger and Lever. well I was fortunate enough to see Lever when I was very young and he was absolutely incredible so I always have to classify the two together but Roger is uh, uh, so talented what he can do with the ball and uh, that he's managed to physically stay in shape but then you say Roger is absolutely phenomenal, but what about Nadal? What about Nadal? And, and Djokovic uh, with opportunities this year to prove that he is absolutely up at the top. I mean, his Grand Slam record is increasing. And just knocking on the doorstep is Mr. Murray, and he is playing such good tennis now. Do you regret calling a drama queen? No, I think I... I, think I, I 
I didn't actually. I said he was acting like a drama queen, which okay. he was. And I actually believe that not what I said, but my my remark was a catalyst for everybody else sort of getting on his case. And what that did was help him realize that he needed to get over that. So I should I should be taking <laughs> yeah. some credit for that. Not. <laughs> <laughs> not not jip, no. No. Um, let me ask you, I'm going to ask you in, in the cricket parlance, you can come in off your long run-up now if you like. Um, you were a Wimbledon champion, then we waited a long, long time for Andy Murray, yet we have 60-odd million people in this country. We have uh, largely invented and run the game, um, and we are, you know, there's enough people of, of various kinds of backgrounds, let's be honest, middle-class backgrounds who tend to produce tennis players around the world, at least up to now. Why are why are you and Andy Murray the exception and not part of a regular uh, crop of brilliant tennis players? It's just uh, one of those questions you cannot answer because they also, I mean, Wimbledon generates so much profit which goes directly to the LTA, which goes directly into developing tennis. So where are these players? Is it because they have so many other children, have so many other things to do? Is it because they get a little pampered when they're doing well? Is it because they become big fish in little pools way too soon and then they can't uh, jump into, the, you know, it's tough jumping into the big pool? It's a, ch- a real challenge to answer that question. And I-, I think we're getting more players out there now. So hopefully... If you get enough players, they'll push each other up. You know, they'll because I think if you can get a healthy competitiveness between the players, if somebody's doing well, the Andy or or, uh, or somebody like Kyle Edmund, then the others are going to think that they can do it as well. Is, is it? Um, and this is a, a thought that's occurred to me many, many times. Is it? We're just we're not really a tennis country. We have Wimbledon, um, but really we like football cricket just about and uh, then there's a big drop off but we because we have to have to have the Wimbledon championship we think we have to compete at tennis maybe we're not really a tennis country well I mean I tell you something it's very hard to play tennis all the time in this country if you don't um, get to a certain level and you can afford to play on indoor courts I mean the weather really is not conducive and although I think the status that they're more public courts around than practically anywhere you can't play on them every day and they're not all the surface is not the best surface to learn on because it's usually an all-weather surface so that's been a problem that scientists have not been able to resolve in finding a surface that you can play tennis on when it's drizzling and damp it's only really the dampness it's not even a downpour that you worry about so um, my scientific brain can't produce it either. Well, I'm going to ask you a question then, because uh, let's let's forget about what yourself uh, and, and other women did in the in the 60s and 70s when Britain was producing champion tennis players. Let's leave it to the men. The great story has always been, oh look at look at Sweden. Beyond Borg wins, and a, a generation of Villanders and others come up behind him. Yes. Um, Andy Murray has now won two majors. Surely, by definition, then, since if that's where people talk, there's going to be a whole raft of great young British players following him, or is there? Well, there are a few. There are a few, but the, you know, the proof is not yet uh, uh, developed. 
that cake hasn't risen yet. No, no. Exactly. Thank you. I was trying to find that and I couldn't find it. But, you know, I, I was speaking to somebody who had spent uh, uh, um, the last eight years in China and said what a huge boost Li Na had done for tennis and how they now had so many tournaments. But, but this woman said, and she was a keen tennis player, she said, the problem is that now it's sort of, it was like a fad when Lee Na was there, but without Lee Na and all these tournaments that the WTA has, they have like eight in, in China. I think they're all in China. It might be Asia, but I think they're all in China and they, they're beginning to struggle. So it's been very hard to sustain the momentum behind that Lee Na the star. Don't even get me started on what's happened to American tennis. That's a subject for another program, another time, and possibly another place. Um, well, listen, we're, we're down to the last knockings, I'm afraid, and next we'll be discussing where you are today and your hopes uh, for the future. You're listening to My Sporting Life on TalkSport with me, Danny Kelly, and tonight's studio guest is the three-times Grand Slam singles champion, Virginia Wade. Um, just a couple of minutes left, Virginia. Just to sum up, really, where you are now yourself, um, happy, healthy, I hope. Um, I mean, of course, see on the television all the time because you, you cover all the tournaments um, and where you are now in your life and what are you, you still have future hope and ambitions and all that well I, you know I'm so lucky that I'm still working enough I mean not nearly as much as I was which is just fine so I'm definitely semi-retired and believe it or not having been a, a sort of a restless person I quite enjoy being almost in the famous words as I asked Venus Williams one year at Wimbledon when she'd had the middle weekend of, so what did you do over the weekend? She said, just living. And, <laughs> you know, I just thought that was a beautiful response. And, I mean, you know, I'm, I've got plenty of interests. So I do live mostly in New York, yeah. and I, but I come back here all the time. I'm very English. I um, do enough television and to keep me motivated. And you can watch so much on on the box and um, what else I mean I try to try to keep um, in decent shape I mean I care about that and play a little bit of tennis still hit the, hit the ball very well ah, <laughs> it, but I don't move too well <laughs> so you know everything I, I'm, I'm not complaining about anything you've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.